Welcome back to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there is an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our host today is David O'Mara, poet, playwright, curator, and collaborator extraordinaire. His latest publication is the astounding collection, Masses on Radar, and it's available now. I'd highly recommend you check out our video from his recent book launch. Gregory Schofield says, O'Mara gathers all he sees, even as it falls behind, leaving us aching for more of his incandescent vision. Now, let's turn things over to David to welcome Jordan Tannehill and introduce us to his Giller shortlisted new novel, The Listeners. Hi, everybody. My name is David O'Mara, and I'm, I'm very happy to be doing a podcast for the Ottawa International Writers Festival and uh, interviewing the wonderful Jordan Tannehill, uh, an accomplished playwright, filmmaker, uh, and uh, fiction writer. Um, to list his accomplishments and accolades would take about half our interview time, so I'll, I'll just stick to the basics. He's much lauded as a Canadian playwright and director of film and theatre. His performances are presented widely and translated into 10 languages, uh, which means that his international reputation continues to grow um, as a playwright and filmmaker. In Canada, he has twice won the Governor General's Literary Award for Drama uh, for a few of his plays. Recently, he has also been writing successful fiction with the debut novel, Liminal, a work of autofiction published in 2018. And now his second novel, The Listeners, has just been published by HarperCollins and is currently on the long list for the 2021 Giller Prize. So please welcome Jordan. Thank you so much, David. I asked you if you would be able to read us a little excerpt from the book. So uh, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, so just a little context on the uh, excerpt. Um, the listeners follows Claire, uh, Claire Devon, and uh, she's a 40-year-old uh, uh, high school English teacher uh, who one night, um, while getting ready for bed next to her husband, Paul, begins to hear this low humming sound that Paul can't hear. And uh, it really begins to kind of get under her skin. And so she she decides to get up and investigate, you know, this sound and try to sort of seek out the source of it. So she wanders downstairs. She's on the ground floor of the house in the dark, walking around. And uh, Paul calls from upstairs, Claire, I should have just left it then. I should have stood up, fixed my hair, walked back up to bed and folded myself into Paul's warmth, closed my eyes and put it out of my mind. That would have been the end of it. And my life would have stayed as it always had but it was already too late. It had gotten under my skin. And believe me when I say that I'm not an obsessive person. I don't fuss about details, I'm not a perfectionist. I couldn't give a shit if the house was spotless, even for company. But for some reason, I just couldn't let it go. Part of me was probably thinking that the sound indicated some issue with the house, which was still relatively new and slapped up quickly, like all tracked housing. And we were constantly finding problems with the pipes or the air ducts or the seals around the windows. I'll be up in a minute, I called back, but I wasn't. I stalked around the house for another two hours, 
long after Paul had given up on me and fallen asleep. I moved around in the dark, navigating furniture through muscle memory, stopping every so often to hold my breath and make myself as quiet as possible. The noise persisted, low and droning, with very little variation or modulation. Sometimes I thought I detected a slight bend in pitch, but then I think I was simply focusing on it too intently. I searched the living room, the basement, the garage, unplugging every appliance, the Wi-Fi router, the microwave, the TV, the hot water heater, gutting the smoke detectors of their batteries. At one point, I even flipped the breaker. And as I did, I suddenly remembered being six, losing power in a lightning storm. There was something revelatory about the silence that followed. I never considered that our house had a nervous system or that it whined so loudly. I marveled that there were sounds we could only perceive in their absence and found it unsettling to realize how much I had managed to condition myself not to hear, how much I had to tune out just to get by. Eventually, I took two Ambien and crawled into bed, my heart pounding out of frustration. I stuffed a pillow over my head. After half an hour, I fished a set of earplugs out of the drawer below the sink in the ensuite, but they did nothing. I lay there trying to meditate. I did some stuff with my chakras. I opened my eyes and saw the clock turn three, then four. The noise wasn't at all loud. In fact, I'm sure most people would have had to strain to hear it. But to me, in the silence of the house, it began to feel all-consuming. It was a bit like overhearing a couple's whispered conversation behind you at a restaurant and then being completely unable for the life of you to focus on anything else, not the noise of the other diners, not the waiter, not the person sitting right in front, in front of you. By half past four, I couldn't lie still a moment longer. I took out my earplugs, walked back downstairs, and out the front door. The night was warm. There wasn't a breath of movement on the street. No wind disturbing the leaves or planes tracing the sky. Just the smell of creosote and ionized air, of rain amassing somewhere in the distance. The stillness lent everything the uncanny feeling of a film set, perhaps one of those horror films where some infernal force kills off the teenagers of the neighborhood one by one. Those always seem to be set in suburbs like these. Catalog homes, young trees, driveways lined with SUVs. My eyes were scratchy, raw. I felt cloudy from the ambient. I crossed the front yard, walked out onto the street, and listened. It wasn't in my head or the house. It was there. It was coming from somewhere outside, maybe from next door or down the street, or maybe somewhere beyond our neighborhood altogether. It was impossible to gauge its distance. That excerpt is from quite near the beginning of the book. And uh, let's just say it goes to some pretty <laughs> wild places from there. It certainly does. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and first of all, congratulations on the book and uh, also the Giller nomination. Um, Thank you. How did how did you hear about it, Les? Same as everyone else, by a tweet, or uh, did somebody give you a call? You know, yeah, a friend of mine, uh, um, Chris, called me, and and I was I was really, uh, you know, as the Brits would say, quite gobsmacked. Um, it's certainly a very heady company to be in, um, and um, I'm currently very much enjoying Miriam's book, um, Fight Night, and, right. and yeah, fantastic. It's, it's a great honor. Um, your your excerpt sort of uh, nicely encapsulates the, the central tension in the book, this uh, sort of incessant noise, the hum that Claire, the main character, mm -hmm. is subjected to. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I'm wondering, was was the impetus of the book 
was was it from did you undergo this did you have a personal experience with this or or how did how did the book start for you yeah i mean i stumbled upon the story of the hum or rather a news report of the hum um in relation in fact to a hum that residents of windsor ontario reported uh, also known as the windsor hum I stumbled upon this story about seven or eight years ago um, online, and I was really struck by a number of things about about this. One was um, how sometimes only one person in a house could hear the noise, you know, mm. and how how isolating that would be for them. And their symptoms could be very intense. Um, you know, the, the, the hum over time could cause nosebleeds, headaches, insomnia, depression. And the more I read about the hum, the more I realized that, in fact, it was actually a, a global phenomenon. There's been reports, thousands of reports of a hum since about the early 70s. And in fact, even in Bristol, the UK was linked uh, to two local suicides over the years. Um, and I think in my writing in general, and certainly in my plays, um, I've always been interested in sort of where the fantastic abuts against the everyday. Hmm. Um, or sort of infects or intrudes upon the everyday, the mundanity of our sort of daily lives. And um, and the hum for me really embodies this. It's, um, you know, on one hand, it could be a totally mundane local white noise issue. In the case of Windsor, it, the, the hum was ultimately traced to a blast furnace in a steel factory across the river in Detroit. And, um, but it, it, yeah, at the same time, there are also totally wild theories, um, supernatural theories even, um, for the hum. I mean, everything from government mind control experiments to, um, to, uh, to quite sublime uh, sort of more natural theories like um, possibly the um, jet stream shearing against low and high pressure systems or ocean waves rolling against the, um, the bottom of the ocean and concussing against the continental shelf. Um, so there, there's a kind of, um, yeah, for me, it kind of encapsulates that, 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 that tension um, or that dichotomy, if you will, between the the sort of poetic and magical and um, and the everyday that I find really compelling. And, and it, uh, you know, it balances it very well. You know, you also mentioned the Havana syndrome, which which was uh, another mm. phenomenon that they're still trying to figure out. Um, and the narrative mm. flirts with it, with, with the idea of conspiracy theory and cult culture. And I found it interesting and and evocative how you you tread a fine line between you know sympathy for Claire and her fellow Hummers as they come to be known, and and mm-hmm. but yet perhaps suggesting that they are victims of delusion. Was that a, a, a sort of a, a balance that you were you were you know trying for in the narrative? Very much so. I mean, I'm interested in in kind of the um, the subjectivity of truth and the ways in which truth and facts feel very assailed in this time that we're living through. Um, and, and for us to really, certainly to really empathize with Claire, I mean, Claire for me, I think, um, holds a lot of positions that I do, like, at least initially in the book, I mean, around sort of skepticism and sort of evaluating of facts and science and this, you know, sort of perhaps like a kind of atheism, if you will. And, um, and then kind of goes on a journey in which a lot of her assumptions and, and sort of closely held truths are questioned and mm. rocked. And I want to take the audience on that or the reader on that journey. Um, and, but also for Claire to kind of, for us to sort of trust Claire and at times not trust her along the way and sort of fall out of trust with her and, you know, sort of for us to be conflicted um, about our, um, our allegiances. 
Yeah, the, the I feel like the hum it 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 um it becomes yeah this sort of no pun intended but sounding board for um, everyone's sort of obsessions or projections all through the narrative. Uh, not only Claire uh, but other people who are affected by it seem to be mm-hmm. interpreting on different uh, levels. It's different things, different mm-hmm. people. Whether it's a, a sense of community or sexuality and sanity it's a source of opposition Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a gift to some people uh and sometimes it's spiritual or scientific um was this a comment on society in this age of disinformation do you think yeah i mean i'm definitely interested in um in in exploring that for sure i mean in terms of the hum itself um um you know i think of the hum as this kind of disruptive chaotic force, um, almost even a kind of queer force, if you will, that kind of enters into these lives of these people and kind of upsets the normative order Mm. of their, of their lives. And they kind of, in a way, um, in part, invite it almost into their lives as well. There's some degree of them, you know, both resisting and also inviting it into their lives at the same time. And they, as you said, they kind of make of it what they will. And, and each, it it kind of resonates or kind of um, shapes each person slightly differently um and there certainly is this kind of i mean in the in the case of the hummers as you mentioned they do seem to kind of tap into this almost kind of libidinal ecstatic um headspace this transcendent headspace through the hum um that really kind of releases them or almost kind of shatters their very being and which is both kind of thrilling and terrifying kind of vulnerability um and I think this really speaks to um, speaks to a few things. It speaks to you know, uh, our, our, for me at least, my relationship with faith and um, and a kind of quest for the ecstatic, despite also a kind of um, a deep skepticism towards faith and organized religion. And I think the for me the, the sort of the, the the central point or idea that I'm kind of curious about investigating in this book is, you know, Claire seems to um, you know, Claire suffers from a kind of existential agony around not knowing the source of her suffering mm. initially, you know, when it comes to the hum, she, you know, and, and, and she thinks perhaps if she does know the source of this hum, it'll make her suffering more manageable and more, um, you know, sort of more human scaled, if you will. And I guess the question I pause, you know, or posit is, is it better to manufacture, to invent a source for our suffering or is it preferable simply to admit that we'll never know the source of our suffering, to sort of sit in that state of not knowing? And by by manufacture a source of our suffering, I mean, I mean religion, I mean faith to, on one hand, and I also mean conspiracy culture on the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we we manufacture faith and stories, you know, mythologies about why we're here, why we're, you know, why we're born, why we die, why we get sick, why we lose our loved ones. Um we, we, you know, this is, this is how we kind of, um, of course, manage, you know, the, the, the state of suffering as spiritual beings. And I think conspiracy culture is how we manage our suffering often as political beings, you know, where like we, we you know, we, we need sometimes simple answers for what feel like extremely complicated sources of political suffering, um, being disenfranchised as a voter, you know, why, why am I poor? Why, why, uh, why does this country not resemble the you know the way I think it should resemble? And you know why are these people in power? You know, et cetera. So I think the book is really looking at, you know, um, again, is it preferable to 
manufacture or imagine sources of our suffering or simply for us just to sort of submit to a state of not knowing and to in fact embrace that yeah and i can see that um you know the hum can it's 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 a symbol that stands in for you know that solution or explanation of and source maybe of of suffering it's kind of a blessing and a curse in some ways when she begins to realize other individuals are experiencing it as well wouldn't you think <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's true it's sort of initially this quite sort of um private um internal thing that she you know this kind of internal private burden that she 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 shoulders and then becomes this kind of almost this sort of intimate secret that she shares with one of her students, Kyle. Um, and when it then is this, as you said, this kind of this shared condition with others, um, it becomes something more. And, and she does certainly seek community um, in her isolation. Um, and that's a, that's a very strong impulse, you know, that yeah. we all have, whether it's for you know through faith or through political allegiances conspiracy culture whatever happened what my head you know what have you i think we all sort of seek um we seek community and we also seek rituals as a means of kind of structuring and understanding our our experience and we also you know we you also uh deftly uh illustrate how without giving away any spoilers how you know some some people in that group seek explanation maybe through a violent way or a manipulative way i'm thinking of uh howard or damien um, um mm-hmm. without going into specifics you know i think it it it, it, get, it offers a broad uh sort of um some broad examples of, of where this kind of special gift or curse depending on how you look at it uh where it, where yeah. it leads depending on the person's psychology absolutely yeah it, it's true and, and i think you know, just mentioning those uh, those two characters, I think one of the things I'm really interested in about conspiracy culture is the ways in which it cuts across political allegiance, you know, political kind of um, uh, political camps, you know, so you'll, you'll have people on the far left and on the far right, you know, who are united by their anti-vax sentiments, for instance, you know, mm. I mean, it cuts across class, across, across, you know, cultural background. And, um, and the same thing could be said for, for faith as well. But uh, yeah, so I'm interested in how this group, uh, which is kind of arbitrarily selected in a way, just, in, you know, they kind of self-select in a way themselves by, by uh, being able to hear this hum, you know, or being, you know, burdened by it or suffering from it, um, or as they would, as they would consider it, they're gifted by the opportunity to hear this hum. Um, they, um, you know, they, they they really kind of find themselves in in this in this living room, coming from very different walks of life, and have to kind of bridge those those kind of ideological and political differences to kind of um, to bond together. And I'm interested in how uh, how conspiracy cultures kind of do create these kind of strange communities. And you know, uh, the the there's the group and then the, the narrative shifts tensions with Kyle, which who is the 17 year old student of Claire's. Um, mm. And I, I found it very interesting because it, it plays with what's sort of acceptable, not acceptable. It, there's a, a deep relationship that develops um, for you as the, the writer of the book. Did this seem like sort of that other tension that entered into the story that was necessary? How did that come about? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. It was actually one of the original um, seeds of the idea was, you know, I, I just, when it kind of presented itself to me, I, I, I could see this, uh, I, you know, I saw this protagonist of Claire whose marriage begins to fray mm-hmm. um, because of this tension around the hum, around her hearing it, her husband not, uh, and not being able to really understand what he can do for her to help her or support her, and how she finds solace in a student of hers who can hear it. That for me was like really this sort of departure point for the whole narrative. And um, I, it's, it's, a, it's the relationship I'm perhaps even most interested in in the whole book. Um, it, as you said, does feel kind of... Um, dangerous in a, in, a, in a way that and it, it also feels like kind of a very liminal relationship that doesn't really it's kind of between a number of things it doesn't feel it's not quite romantic although there's elements of romance to it it's not ever is you know it's it's almost has an element of of, of uh desire at last but it's unfilled mm-hmm. it's of course there you know it's a teacher student relationship and in all those kinds of ways it's very fraught and there's a huge age difference between the two you know this is you know literally a minor we're speaking about here and i you know i of course consciously invoke thomas mann in the in the novel um specifically his his um masterpiece the magic mountain though we also you know of course are kind of just sort of recalling his uh, other great work Mm -hmm. um Death and Venice here with this kind of this equally kind of unnameable inappropriate relationship that but though sort of um, gender swapped and we you know we we do have so many examples of kind of an older man kind of um, having this kind of unnameable fascination or lust or or fascin you know um, preoccupation with a youth whether it's Lolita or as I mentioned Death and Venice or you know so on and so forth so many examples through literature and far fewer from the perspective of a, a middle aged woman. Um, and, you know, I was really wondering what kind of, you know, is there any kind of relationship, any kind of love that is possible between a sort of middle-aged woman and a young girl, you know, a boy basically, who's not her relative, you know, not, not in her family, you know, what kind of, and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I, I understand that this, this, um, this started as script for theater. Is that right? It It did actually. Yeah. It's sort of funny in that uh, both liminal and and the listeners both began as kind of other projects that became novels um liminal was initially a kind of series of auto theory essays um that then i began and then kind of narrative kept presenting itself um and i began sort of suturing together pieces of of, of these essays and kind of critical theory pieces um through narrative and and ultimately it became became an autofiction novel um and that that was you know very much the best vehicle for that material and in a similar manner um the listeners was initially i wrote, wrote this kind of like four and a half hour epic play for the national theater in london <laughs> uh, with like 20 characters you know it was like this massive you know state of the nation play still with care you know with, with claire as our protagonist but it was this kind of amazing unwieldy show and and um 
And it was a great opportunity for me as a writer to hear these characters come to life in the workshop, mm. you know, the actors giving voice to their argument, uh, you know, the lines of argument, their, their, uh, their specific, you know, specific syntax, everyone trying to be, you know, every, like it allowed me to really clearly define everyone in the room. Um, and it was also just, yeah, it was unstageable. <laughs> so I was, okay. you know, I would have had to kind of cut it in two, you know, at least in half and it, to, for it to be pot, you know, for it to be, uh, uh, reducible in, you know, in, in one single evening. And I just didn't want to turn it into kind of a pat cult narrative or a kind of downward spiral narrative. So I thought, okay, this is not, I'm not going to cut it in two, but I'm going to dismantle it and reimagine it as a novel. And I, I had to sort of start from scratch again and really write it as a novel, but what the novel does so uniquely better than I think any other form perhaps is, is allowing a deep interiority, um, psychological interiority, um, that allows you to enter Claire's, in this case, Claire's mind and, and her um, subjective experience of these events. And that to me totally unlocked this story. Right. And that, that, that you feel is something that, that the novel can do that maybe theater can't in some ways is, is that, that interior. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so. Do you, do you approach and you, you know, do you create and build a character differently in, in those different genres? Uh, do you think, I know that you said that it helped to workshop the play to get a sense of the character. Um, when you were, mm -hmm. when you were changing it into a novel, did the characters change? Did you, did you find, uh, yeah, did, did it alter how, how you imagined it? For sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, a, a, a play text is really meeting an actor halfway um, in, the, in the, the shaping or creation of a character. So there's just, you just have less, um, you know, with, with the novel, you there's just there's just so much more opportunity for character voice and and you know divergent thoughts and and backstory and all the stuff that kind of fleshes out our, our understanding of who Claire is. Um, whereas with writing for you know you're, there's there's obviously a certain kind of concision that has to conciseness that has to happen with with um, a play text and. Um, there's a lot of clear in that in that play text, but there's also a lot of act that the actor brings to that that role that then kind of completes our idea or our vision of, of who this you know this this character is, and uh, yeah, so I think I really got a much better sense of who Claire ultimately is once I began writing her um, in you know in her voice writing this novel. Uh, and of course, you know, a play can get right into the head of a character as well. I mean, the whole play can take place in a character's mind. Um, it can take place in a dream of the characters or, you know, in a, you know, in a single instant, in the, you know, in, in, the, in, in, uh, in, you know, in, in a character's psyche, but it's, there's still, um, yeah, I don't know, the novel still for me, I, it, it just, it does something better than any other form in terms of really just a kind of sustained engagement with um, a, a sort of, yeah, a, 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 an interior psychology. Um, well, I, I'll ask you this too. We probably should wrap up in a moment, but um, you know, in your, in your book of essays, Theater of the Unimpressed, which is a wonderful reading, I highly recommend it for anyone, not just for people involved in theater, but just thinking about uh, creative decisions and, um, you know, trying different things. Uh, you talk a lot about risk, mm. uh, risk in theater. And mm. 
I was wondering, is, 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 is writing fiction a risk for you? Do you feel like uh, mm-hmm. when you, when you've sat down to write liminal on this, that uh, this is something that, you know, <laughs> perhaps raises fear to some degree? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think in both cases, maybe I had to kind of fool myself into thinking I was writing something else first before I actually wrote a novel, because I would have you know, I just would never probably completed either project or I would have, you know, I would have, I think, especially with liminal, I was really wrestling with major, um, imposter syndrome, you know, I mean, who am I to write a novel? Who's going to read this? Mm -hmm. You know, will it find an audience, especially given how, you know, relatively vulnerable making the auto fiction genre is, um, and, you know, kind of knowing, you know, sort of, it's obviously it's, one is kind of knowingly exposing themselves to, to uh, pretty close examination, um, which is both kind of the, the thrill, I suppose, of the, of the form. And also it's, um, it's risk, I suppose, as you say. And um, I felt perhaps listeners was, I felt uh, a bit less of an imposter this time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's been a lot more of a joy, um, talking about this book than like listeners you know that liminal but it always took so much out of me to talk about every every like you know sort of interview i had to kind of like sit down afterwards and almost kind of meditate and think okay what have i said about myself what am i saying about my family what am i you know it just felt like so kind of uh sort of like an exorcism but uh this has been a lot more pleasant of a process and but yes yeah, still a risk i mean i think um you know, a novel is a huge investment of time and, and psychic energy, you know, four years of your life. And there's a risk that no one's going to read it or, or, you know, not respond to it the way that you, you uh, hope that they will. Um, and um, even though this is a kind of literary page turner in a sort of, you know, it's a pretty kind of plotty novel in a pretty traditional sense, I am trying to sort of also take certain risks on the page here and there, you know, it's still a very, you know, it's a literary work and, and there's a degree of experimentation here and there too. So I'm trying to also within the work itself, trying to push myself as a writer and, and push the form and, and really kind of think critically about what is a kind of uh, a novel for our so-called post-truth moment, you know, and what would that look like? So yeah, kind of risks on all levels, both kind of form wise, hopefully to some extent, but also personal to some extent. Well, I, I I would say you certainly have found your audience. It's a it's an engrossing read, um, uh, uh, really fascinating um, exploration of these people's obsessions. Kind of keeps you on edge. Uh, uh, really interesting. And 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 thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you so much, David. And congrats again on your new book as well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> very excited to read. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, so thank yeah. you to Jordan Tannehill. Uh, his book, The Listeners, is currently on the Giller Longlist. Go out and get it. That was David O'Mara in conversation with Giller nominee Jordan Tannehill about his latest novel, The Listeners. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flint, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.